The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Welcome to our Big Ideas episode. I'm part of a team of journalists here at LinkedIn. That's the LinkedIn news team. And this is the season where we begin to ask an important question. What's going to happen next year? Understanding the future is a big part of what this show is about. It will shape the trends that drive the changes we experience at work and beyond. This year, I'm devoting an entire episode to predictions, in particular, technology predictions. And I've got an amazing guest to help me think through them, Alex Kantrowitz. Alex is host of Big Technology. It's another show I love within the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And he also has a newsletter. You should subscribe to both. Alex follows tech. He's interviewed many of the most important people in the industry, and he watches developments with the experience that comes from decades of seeing what breaks through. Now, we recorded this interview live earlier this fall. You're going to hear it in the low buzz of noise behind us. An audience made for a swell of energy that was contagious. But as you'll also hear, we very quickly tuned everyone out and went deep on the things that are about to happen in tech. And... Since ChatGPT has now made free accounts available to us for a full year, that is where we started. As I was tracking some of this data in the summer, it seemed to me like maybe the ChatGPT revolution was on the way to an end. Because in the United States, and this is reflected globally, traffic to ChatGPT dropped 10% in May and then 15% in June and another 4% in July. Now remember, this was the fastest growing consumer product ever before Threads, and maybe we'll talk about Threads later. Lord. Okay, anyways. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a whole nother can of worms. But this was the fastest growing consumer product before Threads, and it seemed like initially ChatGPT was going to be the product. And as usage started to tick down in the summer, it made me think maybe not. But one interesting thing has happened is as the school year has begun, um, that has ticked up back back again. So it rose uh, 3% month over month in the U.S. and 0.3% worldwide in August, meaning that back to school is happening. We're still going to see what's going to happen in September and, and October. So um, does that mean that your thesis is that a whole bunch of high school students have started using ChatGPT to write their essays again? More than a whole bunch. Nearly every high school <laughs> and college student. I visited a college in the spring and the students were telling me not only were they using it to complete their work, but when their professors couldn't explain a concept well enough, they would go to ChatGPT and say, hey, can you help me understand this in a way that right. professors so-and-so could not? And they learn from the thing. So, this uh, and, is- and I want to stay with that a second, right, Alex? Because I think the whole thing about ChatGPT, about the launch of any new tool, and certainly at scale with ChatGPT, is that as it launched, we didn't exactly know how to use it, right? We all sort of ran it and started experimenting with it. But, you know, when I was a child... I remember in sixth grade, my sixth grade algebra teacher sent me out to the drugstore to buy a calculator. And my father was scandalized that I would bring a calculator to school. But of course I would bring a calculator because it was a helpful tool. I would be able to do my math better. 
And it sounds to me like what you're talking about when you're talking about the professors and the students is like a world in which ChatGPT is the same version of a helpful tool. Absolutely. And ChatGPT happened to be perfect for some situations. School is one example because it's so generalized and you learn so much in school. But what we're starting to see now is that it is the technology is being adapted and applied into different professions in different iterations. So I think now we're starting to see the, this moment where it went from a demo that OpenAI, which is the creator of ChatGPT, put out into a broader phenomenon. It had to get applied differently into different chatbots. And the legal field is one example where it's been very, very interesting. And I think an example of what we're going to see, where there have been these chatbots that can do discovery for you and can look through legal texts and do all the work that you would assign to paralegals and junior associates back in the day. Right. Um, and now you can just use it. You can do it with these these new products that are coming out that are not chat. GPT, but built on similar technology. And one of the interesting things that's happening here is that these firms are actually hiring more people because they have more capacity now. They can bill more. Right. And, um, and yeah, the, the special... When you say these firms, you mean... Law firms. You mean the law firms. So so in some ways, the, the, the general conclusion would be like, oh, well, you know, the AI will take away the jobs. But what I'm hearing you say is actually, at least in this moment... The AI is allowing for more jobs because Correct. there's more work to be done because the AI makes things efficient and faster. Yeah, and I also spoke with the Mayo Clinic uh, about how AI has changed radiology there because they have about seven AI tools inside the clinic and they wow. use it for actually the person who's running AI there, not surprisingly, is a radiologist and uh, they're, they're still hiring. So it's one of these things where it's sort of cliche to say it, but it makes people more effective. It frees them up to do things uh, that are more productive with their time. And, and I think so you, we started talking about what, what's this going to look like in 2024. To me, it's the specialization, the more enterprise uses. So it's going to happen. Yep. If you're working in a legal field, you're probably going to see this. If you're in a research field, you're going to see a different iteration. And medical field, you'll see a different iteration and so on and so forth. So And it's actually a, a, a beautiful moment for the field because... You know, ChatGPT has to die for AI to live, and that's what's starting to happen. <laughs> so you're 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 predicting that actually ChatGPT. I mean, it's ticking up a little bit, but like ChatGPT is the MySpace to the future Facebook. Essentially, oh, yeah. it needed I, to exist in order to make the case for something that will exist after it. Yeah, and there's a crazy theory I've been playing around with in my head about how OpenAI may become irrelevant at at some point in the future. Uh, maybe not fully irrelevant, but it is interesting how quickly the technology that they've built has been commodified. So they built ChatGPT and released it. And the next thing you know, how many companies have? I mean, Bing, of right. course, but that's a partnership with OpenAI. Uh, Google has released their own with Bard. There are startups like Anthropic who have their own chatbots. Theirs is called Claude. And they recently announced a, a partnership with Amazon that's going to be worth up to $4 billion. You're bridging us into sort of our next big idea, which is that the big tech companies, well, they're angling towards an arms race here. And I'm wondering how it stacks up. And I just I want to remind our listeners that I am asking this from a desk that was supplied by my employer, LinkedIn, that is owned by Microsoft. So I am somewhere in this story at the same time as we chat about it. But Alex... Help me understand, like, what's the landscape? What's the stack up? So you have you have OpenAI and Microsoft, obviously the first big partnership and the first one out the gate with this technology while companies like Google were afraid to launch their version because remember, before ChatGPT came out, Google had an engineer who said that AI that they had in their <laughs> office was a person and sentient. Yes. So they clearly had the goods. Yes. Um, 
So you have that partnership. That's that seems like they'll be developing. So licensing the technology out through Azure and cloud, developing the consumer product with OpenAI. So you have ChatGPT, you have Dolly. They're going to do more multimodal stuff, which is a fancy tech way of saying it's not just text, but it's you can drop an image in and ask it to modify it or explain to you what's happening, or you can write a concept and it can create an image and you can speak to it and then maybe it will speak back or actually it already is starting to speak back. So that's sort of like the the frontier, so to speak. Right. Then you have Facebook and I think we're going to get to this a little bit, but I might just spoil it right now. I think Mark Zuckerberg is trying is trying to destroy Sam Altman because who okay. runs OpenAI. Let's just back up with these two characters here. Yes. Okay. So um, it's funny, I actually met them each at about the same time when both of them were in their early 20s. And one would never guess that these two people would go on to be such formidable <laughs> characters. So you get you get Mark Zuckerberg, you know, started Facebook in, you know, 2004, I believe, built Facebook into something that became meta because, do you remember exactly his line around why it became meta? Like, Facebook is a blue app, but meta is the future, right? right? Um, and then you've got Sam Altman, and Sam Altman, of course, is at the helm of ChatGPT. Exactly. And OpenAI. OpenAI. Right. So you remember that after Mark Zuckerberg created the Blue app, he made a few very important acquisitions in one product development. He, he bought WhatsApp. He bought Instagram, which is content, but it really is a messaging app at the end of the day. Yes, And he true. built Facebook Messenger. And so how do you think Mark Zuckerberg felt when he saw the hottest new consumer product ever as a messaging app, not very happy. No, and not so, so much. So people have said, like, is OpenAI a threat to Google? Is it a threat to Amazon? Maybe. But the real threat is to Meta, because if people start really going ham on these on these AI chats, it leaves Meta as this sort of <laughs> irrelevant human yes. chat app. And yeah. so <laughs> what, what Zuckerberg has done is a few really interesting things. One is with his AI team, he's released um, Llama 2, Right. which is a set of generative models that allows you to do similar stuff to what you would do with the underlying technology behind ChatGPT. Right. And then he's also released these series of messaging bots inside WhatsApp and Messenger, which each have different personalities and are played by interesting people like Snoop Dogg and Dwayne Wade. And, you know, right now they're just kind of like faces that smirk at you, but eventually they're going to be voices. That's at least what they say. And so you have Facebook going to war with, with OpenAI and Sam Altman, and I think it's been an underappreciated part of this entire story. You know, it's, it feels to me that over the course of Mark Zuckerberg's career, uh, he hasn't been consistently good at creating new things inside Facebook that take mm -hmm. off. Sort of like a classic innovator's dilemma there. The right. thing that he is actually pretty good at is killing other things that are taking off in other places. Yeah, right? and that's a skill. Yeah, well, that do, is a skill. Do you buy my theory or do you think I'm nuts? Um, <laughs> jury's out, man. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you have a theory. I will say that I the, the bots thing, like I you show me show me consumers who want it before I'll believe in it. Okay. We're gonna take a quick break here. When we get back, more thoughts on 2024 without the LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Alex Kantrowitz. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. We're back with Alex Kantrowitz. Last year, Elon Musk bought Twitter. This led to the rise and fall and maybe rise again, maybe fall again of an app called, well, now called X. The question I really wanted answered was, who's on X these days anyways? So I still use it, um, but I've noticed, and yeah, I've noticed that the community feels a lot thinner now than it did previously. I think that's due to, you know, people talk about Elon driving people away. I think it's really due to some of the product changes that they've made. And the, the core of these products are the feed, right. right? That stream of new information and funny jokes that are just presented to you and rolling through with an algorithm. And the feed has changed without a doubt. It used to be a lot more, let's say, timely, uh, a lot more you know, interested in showing you the news. And now it shows you chat GPT influencers and memes and- I pulled it up today. I haven't opened it in a while, but Alex, I knew we were gonna talk. So I, I still have the app on my phone. I pulled it up. And the first third of the screen was this huge ad at the top of my feed telling me that, did I know I could now buy ads on the platform right. before we even got to the content? Yeah, that's another problem is their ads don't work very well. Yeah. And they did lay off most of their sales team. Or not most, but a very good chunk of it. And yeah. so they've really struggled on the revenue side there. Although Yaccarino did say they're going to be profitable next year. But I'll wait to wait until that happens, until I believe it. So here's the thing that is, to me, most interesting about what's going on with X. It's about what it means for everyone else. So what is, what is the current uh, state of X mean for social more generally? Well, social is going through a bit of a, a shaking out, so to speak. I think social media used to be a lot more fun, wouldn't you agree? I mean, social media used to be social. Yeah, exactly. I used to know that like, I could find somebody. I could find you if I look for you, Alex, right. right? Yeah. So the social element has gone away and it's been replaced in some ways by a more homogenous type of format. So... If you think about any social media app right now, it's largely a version of TikTok, right? TikTok is TikTok. Uh, Instagram is definitely TikTok. Facebook is kind of TikTok. And then you have um, sort of the text-based apps, yeah. right, which is Twitter and its clones, so Twitter, Threads, and um, Blue Sky, and True Social, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we have basically two formats now. Um, 
the Reels format is doing really well. Um, the text-based format isn't doing as well because it really worked well when everybody was on the same app. But now that people have fanned out, like the fact that you have, I don't know, tens of millions of users on threads and Donald Trump and the conservatives on true social, people don't see each other anymore. Like you said, mm -hmm. it's not social mm -hmm. and for better or worse. And so that's sort of falling into irrelevance in the way well, I see it. Well, social used to be a path to both relationships and information, right? right? And at this point, it has become so fragmented that it's no longer a good path to information. And you have to know the relationships you're looking for before you get to where you're going in order to get to the right places to find them. And it makes me think, well, is social over? Are we moving on to new ways of organizing both relationships and information? I don't think over, but I think there's this very, very interesting thing that happens when something accelerates you know, you tend to look at the mode of acceleration and you're like, right. that thing is a rocket ship. And then it tops out at 60 and the car starts shaking and you're like, oh, it's just a jalopy, <laughs> but it can, it's road safe, but yeah. <laughs> it wasn't exactly going to space. And right. maybe that's what happened with social, where it seemed at the moment that it had all the energy and, um, and was just going to take off and dominate our lives. And people built businesses. I mean, BuzzFeed, right. my former employer, was built off this idea that we were only going to live in social and no other format would make sense. Right. And that's tailing off. And so some of like the new media formats or like the old media formats that have now resurfaced, like podcasts, for instance, like email newsletters. Right. Um, I'm so much more bullish on those as a way to find information and actually find people that you connect with, like right. your audience that, you know, they find you and they connect with you. And that is a very deep and meaningful relationship for them. And then they'll find there will be other channels to like, get in touch. Um, I think LinkedIn, you know, we're both part of the LinkedIn podcast network. I think that is an, like an unbelievable vehicle for people to connect with hosts and shows they like and other listeners. I mean, I know Big Technology Podcast is all in on LinkedIn and it's been amazing both for show growth and for me to connect with the people listening. And uh, so that's one interesting evolution that I've seen. Well, I'm glad to hear you say the word LinkedIn not once but three times in that like in the last minute, Alex, um, because you're right. It is my employer. And it is also a social platform. It was somewhat of an accident that I'd been bringing up. It didn't even pop into my mind because I think of LinkedIn at this point as something a little different than the rest of those. Um, that it is social, but it has this protection in the form of both real identity and access to economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And those things serve as a bit of a moat for it. And when I began covering social, I felt like those were the things that made it boring, Alex. I remember, in fact, being like, oh, I'm not even going to include LinkedIn in that story back mm. in like 2007 or something. Because like, that's just your resume. That's not even interesting. But at, at this point, it turns out that those are the things that make LinkedIn a safe place where you can find real people and have meaningful conversations. Yeah, I like the fact that then I wrote this before I joined the network. So for anyone who's saying that, like, I'm biased on this one, I mean, look, I'm not going to try to um, pull apart the fact that I'm part of the podcast network. The network sells the ads on my podcast. We do a rev share. That's the truth. That being said, like I wrote this before I even joined, I like the fact that the feed is a slow burn. So I think part of the problem with social media is that people write ridiculous things for that quick endorphin hit of like, I wrote this incendiary, you know, tweet and now a thousand people like it. Right. The LinkedIn feed actually decided this is not any inside information. It's just my experience. It seems to move information about the network a little bit more slowly and deliberately. And I think you can still reach a tremendous amount of people there. 
but because it's not that instant, oh man, hit, hit of dopamine when you post, you're actually incentivized to be a lot more thoughtful and try to reach people with stuff that matters versus stuff that might piss them off. And uh, I think that's cool. I really appreciate that. And I hope that that continues to be true in 2024. Here's one we haven't covered. 2023, it felt to me like cars began to truly drive themselves in cities all across the United States in these little pilots. Um, are we going to see more of that next year? Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> have you been inside a Waymo or a cruise before? Um, I have not, but I back, back in the old days, right. in 2018, I went off to Pittsburgh to drive an Uber. I actually got to like sit in the driver's seat and drive all around Pittsburgh in one. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So actually, Pittsburgh is like a crucial city for this development because it's where a lot of the self-driving work has been done through Carnegie Mellon. So right. you were there. And it's interesting because there was this moment where an Uber was investing a lot in it and everybody was investing a lot in it where people are like self-driving cars. We're already getting them to work in parking lots in the Uber complex and like they're coming <laughs> next year, stand by. Right. And then it was just like, okay. And then we waited, you know, waited. close to 10 years for this stuff to actually hit, hit city streets. It started, a lot of it started in Arizona, but I think people's eyes really opened when these self-driving cars started driving around San Francisco. Now, some of that might have been some bias because like a lot of the tech press is in San Francisco. Right. The other thing is it's really freaking difficult to drive around San Francisco. And yeah, hills alone. They're a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the pedestrians. The fact that these cars worked in San Francisco showed, and both Cruise and Waymo, Cruise is largely owned by GM or GM has a huge stake in it. Waymo is... Google's, the fact that these cars were able to generalize their skills, their way that they view road, view the roads and identify lights and understand pedestrian behavior, that they were able to go from a place like Arizona to San Francisco was, to me, the most underappreciated inflection point in 2023. I mean, civilization rocking stuff. And it you only really have to get it right once before you, if you're able to generalize because all that work to get into Arizona that's all the work and then that's the cool thing about technology is it scales so right. it can move into San Francisco and then if it gets San Francisco right it can much more easily move into many different cities and i was speaking with uh, Kyle Vogt who's the CEO of Cruise and he gave us a stat something like they 10 they 10x the amount of rides they gave this year as opposed to last year, and we'll 10x again next year and 10x again the year after that. And riding in these cars, you just see that it's a superior experience to uh, riding in a car driven by a human. They are smooth because it's a robot. It's an algorithm driving it. So it doesn't have to like react in the moment and slam on the brakes. It will ease you into the light and it will ease but you out of the light. don't they take left turns like my grandma? They are, they are surprisingly adept at... at I mean, I went through a number of like very challenging uh, traffic patterns in San Francisco. I took about a dozen rides okay. in these cars over the summer and they handled them extremely well. And this is this is just this huge, huge change. And it went from like oh, self-driving cars. Ha ha ha. That will never happen for me, at least to like self-driving cars like my kids. And it's going to be a while, but they <laughs> they will not have to learn how to drive if they don't want to. This stuff yeah. is coming. Yeah, well, all of these things are true. The thing that I think about when I think about self-driving is that it's a very start-and-go industry. And, you know, all technology is. But you will make these big leaps, and it will feel like it's all coming tomorrow, as you said. And then things will level out for one reason or another. So last big topic I have for you, given that it's you and me, and we have been doing <laughs> this for a long time. Um, 
where is tech media right now? I mean, when I got started at this, um, tech media was in the business of propping up all of these things that were just like great ideas. I mean, stories were so fawning, right? And then we went through this period um, where we really struggled as people in the industry to figure out how to hold some of these companies accountable. And we were all kind of new at it because it wasn't really how we had approached tech reporting. Where are we now? I think we're in the middle of a really important and healthy and good balancing out where tech media, as you mentioned, started as cheerleaders and gadget people and just was like so reflexively positive toward the tech, towards the tech industry and then had this huge overcorrection. A lot of that was based off of Facebook, which is you and I have both interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. So it's a company that, that we know well and sort yes, of like... so well. But the first time that I interviewed him, he was mm-hmm. still at Harvard. Wow. Um, and I interviewed him yeah. for the story I was doing on MySpace. Somebody was like, oh, you should talk to that kid. <laughs> and it was like a 15, 20-minute interview. And he kept calling uh, Facebook a utility, which I think the first comms person they hired was like, never use that word when you're talking right. about oh, Facebook. Oh, yeah, because that invites not regulation. <laughs> right. Um, but you're right. Yeah. And I don't know if you had this experience mm-hmm. over the years. Um, but certainly when Facebook, now Meta's narrative changed... Um, Meta was the last company to cotton on to the fact that its own narrative had changed. Oh, for sure. Um, I found it very challenging to manage my relationships with executives that for years I had had what felt to me like very honest conversations with. Because when I'd call their laundry dirty and we were all looking mm. around at it and seeing that it was dirty, they would be like, what? This shirt's clean. What are you talking about? That's right. They became way too defensive. And then like the context of that is... There was, there was a moment, we're talking about this moment of, of sort of unbridled criticism that came from the tech press, where there was ne- no harm in saying the worst possible thing about Facebook. You'd be yeah. applauded for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of scrambled the brains of people who are supposed to look at things more critically and objectively. And so I think right now we're in like this third phase, which hasn't really been identified, but it seems like a very worthwhile moment where that objectivity and crit- critical thinking is coming back in some way. And so having been through these two waves, I think you're right now seeing a much more balanced, much more fair and, you know, uh, and an unafraid tech press in a way that like the industry serves the industry and serves the general public uh, in a way that's way better than those first two iterations. And I think, you know, that this movement, there's been this movement towards independence. Um, I think I'm part of that, right? Because I don't write for a newsroom anymore or traditional newsroom. I write for Substack and that has allowed me to like, branch branch out and be like, what do I really think about these issues and write that way? That's helped, but... And Alex, I- just to be clear, you don't write for Substack. You write for Alex exactly. at this point, right? Yeah, you yeah. Have, well, for my have, audience. You really. have used right. the tools around you to create a platform so that you can talk directly to your audience. Exactly. Which is yeah. something that is thanks to tech. That did not exist when either of us started this career in the same way. Totally, yeah. It's, it's nice that it exists and yeah. I'm thrilled about that. And... Yeah, I, I do think we've also seen like a lot of digital media fall apart. The business model just didn't work. Yeah. And, you know, the move, when people, move, there's been a movement towards subscriptions. And when people pay for news and, and they open it in their inbox or they listen into their podcast app, it requires more of a respect for the reader where you're not right. trying to inflame a Facebook audience right. to get a story moving. And I, I think that's been positive as well. That was Alex Kantrowitz, host of the Big Technology Podcast. 
And right at the top of this episode, we talked a lot about ChatGPT and the company that released it, OpenAI. Of course, we recorded this conversation before the company's shakeup. Just before Thanksgiving, the OpenAI board attempted to oust the CEO, Sam Altman. For several days, things were in flux as most of the company's 700 employees said that they'd quit if he left. Sam was reinstated as CEO. But it was uncomfortable to watch this news unfold. The stakes felt high, and we all realized how much was riding on a startup, and one with an unusual business structure to boot. So I called Alex back to see if his thoughts on ChatGPT have evolved. Well, it's pretty fascinating because it effectively leaves OpenAI in the same position as it was before Sam Altman was fired, in that it's a nonprofit that's very closely linked to Microsoft and will continue its research in effectively the same way that it was beforehand. But what I think this news pretends is that competitors to OpenAI are really going to see a little bit of blood in the water and they are going to try to take advantage in the best way that they can. And that will definitely involve some competitive initiatives on the enterprise front, but we could also see consumer products start to try to edge their way in. And that might lead to an even faster move from these bigger bots like ChatGPT to these smaller bots like we spoke about. And that'll be very interesting to watch as it plays out over the next few weeks and months. So in effect, your big idea about ChatGPT, that in fact, we're moving to a post-ChatGPT world where there are tons of applications of AI that are narrow and often uh, much more effective in their their specialties. Um, that That's just going to happen faster as a result of all this, right? Exactly. And there are going to be companies that will have been building on OpenAI infrastructure that might not move off of it, but will at least be thinking about how they build uh, on different models like Anthropic, for instance, or how do they customize open source models and and build on top of those. And that might make their products better in the long run if they just kind of figure out what the right model is for them, which could help accelerate this move faster than it was previously. Why do you think that this particular, you know, startups lose their CEOs all the time? Personality battles, disagreements, they happen at startups all the time. Why do you think that this particular um, debacle felt so high stakes? Yeah, because it wasn't just about Sam Altman. It was effectively about the mission of OpenAI itself. It wasn't, should this person lead us uh, forward? It's, should we move forward at all or should we move forward slower? And so if you're a startup that's building on top of that technology to realize all of a sudden that a company can just say, you know what? No, it sort of changes <laughs> things for you. That is, has, is and has always been the challenge of building on platforms or with platforms, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, we, how many, I mean, Jesse, like we met covering like the Facebook beat. And how many companies have built on top of Facebook and said, you know what, that was a bad idea in <laughs> retrospect. And I'm not saying that OpenAI has the same composure or characteristics of it, but there is platform risk when you start to bet your entire existence on one company. Uh, well, it will certainly give us so much to talk about in the new year. And while our show isn't so fully about tech that this comes up every episode, your show is. And so for our listeners who are just particularly motivated to understand these sorts of things, I hope you will tune in to Alex's show, The Big Technology Podcast, and your newsletter, Alex, which they can find on LinkedIn. 
That's right. For our listeners, I hope that they tune into yours. I've been seeing some guests pop up recently where I'm like, oh man, I was a little bit too late to book them. So I think for our listeners, if you end up listening to Hello Monday on Mondays and Big Technology on Wednesday and Fridays, you're going to have a pretty good uh, comprehensive media diet. And I think you'll enjoy your professional life a little bit more. This week, we publish our list of big ideas for 2024. Now, the editor for this project, well, it's someone you all already know. It's our good friend, Scott Olster. He brings us our regular book recommendations. But this week, I've invited Scott to come give us a preview of the list. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jesse. It's nice to see you. I know you have been so busy actually getting this list ready for all of us, right? Oh, yeah. This is a uh, multi-month affair, and it it involves editors on our team from all over the globe. It's one of my favorite moments of the year, and I'm really excited it's out. So where do these big ideas come from anyways? I mean, who's thinking them up? Yeah, so every year, all of our editors across the globe put our heads together, and we also reach out to many of the top voices and experts and leaders who we speak to on a regular basis throughout the year. We reach out to them, we ask them, what do you think is going to be critical in the year to come? What should we be paying attention to? And what are we going to be surprised about? Now, we have just done a whole episode of tech-related big ideas, but what I love about this list is it's eclectic. It's really anything that touches business in any way at all. And I wonder, Scott, if you'll, like, you know, just give us a preview. Like, give us a good one. Sure. One of my favorite ideas from this year is all about balcony power plants. So, Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, right? The idea that you could have this miniature power plant in your home, but but on your balcony. It's a solar-powered uh, uh, power generator, and it can actually generate enough electricity to power homes, uh, or, at least, or at least a portion of electricity uh, for your home. Is this happening in equatorial countries, like, you know, where the sun is just powerful and bright all the time? Well, I mean, there's certainly an opportunity there, but in fact, uh, this is really taking off in Germany. Why Germany, you think? That's a good question. I mean, in Europe overall, there is a lot more enthusiasm and interest in sustainability. Right. And I would say Germany is absolutely no exception to that. Uh, The U.S. is going to take a little bit more time, as you might expect. (laughs) Well, listen, I know that there are a lot of big ideas that um, are very much present in the United States as well, because I took a read over this list myself. And This list, by the way, is not the end-all, be-all of big ideas. There's an opportunity for listeners, right, Scott? A hundred percent. One of my favorite aspects of this package is that we want to hear from our members. We want to know what's top of mind for them in the coming year. What do they think is going to be front and center in their working lives and and beyond? So please, you know, post in any way that you uh, see fit. Share those thoughts with us. We want to hear from you. Uh, Thank you so much, Scott. And listen, a question for you. Now that you have finally finished editing the big ideas for the year, you think you could start reading some books again? I would love to. (laughs) Great. We'll have you back on for a book segment soon. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much. Let's talk more about these big ideas this week at Office Hours. Anything we missed? I'll go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, along with our producer, Sarah Storm. If you're not sure where to find the link, drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send it your way. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. 
Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer keeps us on the cutting edge of big ideas. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening all.